This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Sir Eric Thomas, former Vice-Chancellor at the University of Bristol, President of Universities UK and Chair of the Worldwide University Network, and now Studiosity Advisory Board Member. Welcome. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Evelyn Welsh, now Vice-Chancellor of the University of Bristol and previously Deputy Vice-Chancellor at uh, King's College in London. Uh, welcome, Evelyn. Um, uh, I do know something about being the Vice-Chancellor of the University <laughs> of Bristol, as I'm sure you're finding out. And what I thought we'd talk about today is we'd talk about what it's like being a new VC, you know, and, and diving into the swimming pool. And then I'd like to explore the role of arts and humanities in both university leadership, but also more generally in the intellectual waterfront of a university. Uh, and particularly, for example, with you, where you have a very heavy science university. Uh, 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 but uh, if, that's, if that's okay with you. That's great, Eric. And, and yes, indeed, uh, you do know something about being the Vice Chancellor of the University of Bristol. It's a fantastic institution. When we last spoke, um, I think you said how much I would enjoy it. And I can say from the very start, I'm really enjoying it. Well, that's fantastic. Fantastic. Great city as well. Just the most marvellous mm -hmm. city. Perhaps, Evelyn, just a tiny picture portrait of your career and yourself. So I am uh, a, an academic through and through. I did my undergraduate degree at Harvard and came over to England in the early 1980s, expecting to do uh, maybe one or two years as a master's program, an MPhil program at the Warburg Institute, which is part of the University of London. I ended up doing my PhD on secular fresco painting at the court of Galeazzo Maria Sforza, Duke of Milan, 1466 to 1476, rather narrow, rather narrow. <laughs> got a, uh, my first job as a temporary lecturer at the University of Essex, got a postdoc, did lots of temporary jobs, and went to Sussex, uh, which was a, and is a great university, for 10 years, left there as Pro Vice Chancellor for Teaching and Learning, went to Queen Mary, University of London, East End of London, left there after 10 years as Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Research and International, and then went to King's College London, where I also spent 10 years uh, leaving there, having um, been Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost for the Arts and Sciences. And actually my final job was around people and planning uh, right. and doing lots of stuff around um, making buildings and people work effectively together. So I'm hoping to have another decade as the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Bristol. Brilliant. I was, it, it, were you able, I mean, it's always one of the great sorrows for me that because it was molecular biology and the field was changing at the speed of light, I couldn't carry on academic work when I was in a senior leadership role. Everything was, you know, I, I had to. Were you able to continue to carry on your intellectual inquiry? Uh, uh, absolutely. And in some ways, carrying on doing teaching, supervising PhD students, and having my own research grants has made it possible for me to really present myself and understand what colleagues are 
going through. So I'm just completing a, a book called Renaissance Skin, which is the culmination of a five-year Wellcome Trust senior um, fellowship program. And the thing, of course, that I'm most proud of is not just the book itself, which um, I got a, a deadline at the end of January to do, um, but I had five postdocs, all of whom now are in their own academic positions or right. non-academic positions yeah. and, and creating careers for others is I think what we do now. But I, I have always had large research projects simultaneously with large academic um, leadership portfolios. And I found that they've complemented rather than got in the way of each other. Although it's not straightforward in terms of diving. <laughs> but, but it keeps you right at what academics famously call the front line, doesn't it? You're, you know, you, there's no way that people can say you've no idea what it's like because you're... It, 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 exactly. It, it does make academia sound a bit like a battlefield and um, front line, you know, back of house. Uh, the, my better analogy is um, like an opera house that you have the diva out in front, but the diva would not actually be able to have an audience without the marketing team, somebody selling the tickets, and above all, the electrician. So the electrician, of course, wouldn't get paid unless people came to the opera because of the name of the diva on the front of the opera. So we all need each other. Um, we all recognize each other's strengths but we also need to be very appreciative of the fact that there's probably only one diva who is able to deliver those high notes. Yeah, it is. I think you're quite right about, we should stop the battlefield analogies a bit about, because actually it doesn't feel... I mean, going on to being a new VC, I remember when I... Uh, you, you're very experienced, Evelyn. You've, you've had loads. I mean, I went from Dean of Medicine to VC, and um, I remember describing someone as uh, my first three months felt as if I jumped off a cliff, yes. you know, <laughs> and I wonder if there was still a jumped off a cliff uh, feeling about it or has all that experience in a sense prepared you for what, what it is? So I, um, th there's always a transition and there's always a huge amount of listening and learning to do. And the biggest danger I think you can make as a new vice chancellor is to assume that because you've done one thing in one institution, you can transfer it with ease to another institution. Mm. And that's something that I'm very, very aware of. And the, the, the big advantage that I've had is with now 20 years of academic leadership under my belt is that I'm very used to working across very different disciplines. Mm. So, so the way um, academic achievement is evaluated and honored in physics is very different from the way it's evaluated and honored in mathematics. And that's even within you know, a single faculty. The way that um, you work with your PhD students in history is totally different from the way you work with your PhD students in chemistry. Mm. And, and I can't imagine having to learn all of that nuance in three months. <laughs> um, because it, you know, it, it's, a, it's a lifetime's work of understanding why somebody is saying 
we do it this way and another person from the same institution is saying no no we, we have to do it that way you instead of seeing the contradictions I actually see this as this extraordinary rich variety um, which uh, you need to respect that variety while creating the overall framework that allows us to behave not like sole traders but as a single institution. I, I used to use the analogy of, 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 a, of a kind of waterfront the yes. university is a waterfront and that you know the, the various buildings that make up a waterfront and those can be the departments or the uh, or the faculties and uh, and, that it, and it makes a, an intellectual whole which it, which what's important for the leader is to make that coherent as you've just pointed out as 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 as, as an entity yeah. So, so maybe what you you did, Eric, and I think you did a brilliant job, is you put all the restaurants in the front of all of those buildings, um, and, and and so there's a sort of sense of of of, of you know joyous festival. Well, one of these things with these podcasts has become clear and clear to me is is how much universities are linked to their place, and I and I you know it, it's a different game in London, uh, 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 Evelyn. You know, it's such a huge metropolis. Uh, have, how how have you, you know, um, what's going to say, navigated the relationship between the university and the city? Yeah. And, and it's been so interesting for me because uh, at the University of Sussex, it was a campus institution actually trying very hard not to be linked to Brighton and the city because it wanted to be a globally uh, global player um, at Queen Mary. East End of London, again, some tension between being a real East End institution and being a global institution. And then at King's, you're just a global institution benefiting from that being at the heart, the centre of, of London, but really hard to work with the city of London because it's so many different cities. Whereas Bristol is just brilliant. It's perfect. Goldilocks, perfect. Not too small, not too big, just right. And it's big enough to be dynamic, globally facing, very diverse, but small enough to get things done. And, and I've never experienced that before. And that, I think, is what makes the University of Bristol so unique is its relationship with the city of Bristol. So together we can actually achieve things that would be just so much harder, either in a smaller town where you would totally dominate, you know, Durham, for example, right. um, or a larger city where you're just one of many. And, and, and I think that is why um, the University of Bristol really is successful, is because of that symbiotic positive relationship. So my second day, I was in the mayor's office and, and then regularly every two weeks, I meet with the mayor, I meet with city councillors, I meet with the Bishop of Bristol. Um, that, that kind of strong sense of being part of that civic community who are responsible for the success of the city, as well as, being responsible for the success of the university really really special i mean there's a final observation um which is quite interesting about how things have changed is that if you had gone to bristol 40 or 50 years ago you would have been in the west country it would have yes. felt 
like the West Country. Now it feels a bit more linked to the capital. You know, the M4, it, it draws it into that much more kind of entrepreneurial um, uh, southeastern culture. Do you feel that? So my husband's from the southwest. He was born in Glastonbury. And uh, I think he uh, he loves the southwest and he won't hear anything against it. Um, but I do agree that being linked into the kind of dynamism of entrepreneurial cultures, you know, the University of Bristol has more spin-outs than most other institutions. Uh, it's, it's sort of third after Oxford and UCL in terms of inward investment into spin-outs. And, and that's not just because of um, the kind of links to London. It's also because uh, really brilliant people come to Bristol. It's big enough to find the communities you're looking for, the music you're looking for, the schools for your kids, and you know, good restaurants, great coffee. So there's a sort of buzziness to it that's actually almost West Coast-like in its um, approach. Now, the University of Bristol is moving a campus and um, was creating a campus down by the railway station so that you will get off a train an hour and a half from London and you will be in our new campus. And it'll be interesting to see uh, how that accelerates um, that sense of drive, energy and entrepreneurialism. But it's certainly not a slow moving city at all. No, no. Oh, I'm terribly jealous of you, Evelyn. I really am. But, uh, uh, the, it's all uh, built on legacy, Eric. It's all <laughs> built on legacy. So what I'd like to explore now with you is, the, the in a sense, the role and purpose of arts and humanities in, in, in a university. I, you, you probably don't know, but I actually did a first year level course in history, English and Latin before I changed to the sciences to do medicine. I think I saw myself as a sort of historical scholar, and then I realized I wasn't really clever enough. And, uh, and I often find that, first of all, there's a, you know that there's a sort of sub, subtextual, why do we have arts and humanities? You know, why do we need a degree in history? Why do we need a degree? In, you know, the famous medieval historian comment of Charles Clark or uh, all those years ago, and also that there's often sometimes in arts and humanities a slightly paranoid feeling that they're, that they're an unloved part of the university, whereas they're the most popular subjects. You know, I've just gone through the cabinet, right? There's only one science degree in the cabinet. The other degrees are arts and humanities or social sciences. And, and I always argued that if you want abstract intellectual activity in your university, that's where arts and humanities come in big time. And I just wondered how you saw, whether any of that resonated with you or it's just a scientist's diagnosis. So I think um, I'm, I, I'm a historian, art historian, humanist through and through, and we need to be confident in what our disciplines and our interdisciplinarity bring to the future. So there's something really important about understanding and holding our past so that we can operate in our present and look after our future. 
Um, I actually, uh, my husband is a, a clinical academic and he and I often compare and rather than contrast, we're both incredibly curious. We both are rigorous in terms of the research that we do. And we both have to communicate that work in a way that goes beyond our own disciplinary boundaries. Mm. So that old CP Snow, two cultures, actually we, we don't see in our daily lives. The, the, the big difference that I have seen, and um, one of the reasons that more humanists don't become vice chancellors, for example, is that we have a mythology in the humanities that we operate on our own, that we're lone scholars. A very medieval notion of being a monastic, isolated nun monk in a cell praying on your own. And, and actually that isn't true because we just, we, we, we go to conferences, we collaborate, we network, but instead of giving footnotes to our collaborators, we have sort of star the first footnote and say, I'd like to thank a whole bunch of people that in a scientist's milieu would have been co-authors. So, so the big difference is um, mm. psychological, if you like, seeing yourself as a, a, a lone scholar, a lone wolf, versus a scientist who, if you're going to be successful, has to learn really, really early on, um, like any clinician, to work both as part of a team and to lead a team. And, and that's built into the way science works in a way that it's not built in to the way that arts and humanities works. It's interesting, isn't it? They, um, the, I mean, they, uh, I, I, I suppose one of the questions it begs is the question of, of, of the educational role of, uh, uh, of, of the university. Um, you know, uh, uh, of course, I studied medicine as as did BT your husband, and uh, you know, we we knew what we were going into. Uh, but does it, I fundamentally had defended the idea that actually part of the purpose of going to university is to be educated. And if that's about European history from 1848 to the fall of uh, to Bismarck or whatever, there's no problem with that. And, and you'll use that knowledge in unusual ways, but above all, those the skills of inquiry, those skills of communication, those skills of critical thinking. In a world where jobs are changing every year, not just every decade, those are really, really valuable skills. We're, we're not always great at helping students articulate the skills that they're developing. Um, and we do owe it to the students who come to us, who take out considerable debt to ensure that they have a sense of what futures they are building towards. And we also have an obligation to taxpayers who are paying for some of that education to make sure that we also explain the benefits, not just to us as individuals, but more broadly as well. And, and that's why I go back to see that um, there's something really fundamental about arts and humanities and social sciences, about understanding the, the people side of the past, the present and the future, as well as the more technocratic side of the past, the present 
and the future. And of course, something like maths or astrophysics can be totally philosophical and fundamental to our understanding of how the universe works without necessarily having any direct benefit apart from the sheer joy of seeing how small we are in the universe. Yes. I, I, do, do, do you find enough? I mean, I always say that, you know, when I went to medical school, it, when you picked up the physiology textbook, right, that probably had most of the physiology that was in the whole world in the textbook. <laughs> um, now, of course, you can get three volumes on the physiology of the eye. So our students come from a very different place than the place you and I came to. Absolutely. Uh, and I wondered if that was the same in arts and humanities, you know. Yeah. Um, so so, was... so we're, we're teaching students to learn to learn and we're teaching students to be learners throughout their life and we're teaching them the skills of learning. And in and, and something like anatomy, and the anatomy of, of, the, of the human being hasn't changed, we just know it down to the submolecular yeah. level now. And it's impossible to memorize and take a multiple choice questionnaire on any of that. So you need to know either how to develop that level of expertise, that specialist expertise and where to go to get it, or how to use simulation if you're going to um, maintain physical skills in order to be a doctor, or how to handle artifacts if you're going to be an archeologist or a museum curator. So there's still plenty of learning to do. It's just you have to be three years, four years, five years, six years. It's no longer enough. We're all lifelong learners now, Eric. Yes, uh, I, I, absolutely. I, uh, and um, I mean, uh, my, our son-in-law is, is a lecturer in political science in London. And um, he says that, for, for example, es essay writing skills uh, are not what he'd expected them to be. Uh, you know, the likes of you and I were trained rigorously in writing an essay. <laughs> I bet you were. Uh, and it's a lot more freeform. So they, they're coming, you know, if, if you give them an essay in term one, it could actually be very, very challenging for them because... It's absolutely. Yeah. Mind you, they might be able to tune your TV in a way that I still don't understand <laughs> how to do how to do anymore. Right, right. The other, the other thing with just as preparation for history is my uh, my daughter, uh, who you know a little bit. Uh, Rachel. Yes, Rachel used to complain that all they ever, that, that, that it seemed as if history started at the First World War. And, and that they just repeatedly went over the First World War and, and that, you know, um, it, that, that, that the past, they don't go beyond and into that past in the way that they used to. Is that true, by the way? Or... So, so my experience for students, history starts the day they were born, and everything that you and I regard as contemporary is ancient, really, really ancient. Eric, the wonderful thing about working in universities is that we have a chance to reinvent ourselves every year when a new group of undergraduates come in. That's right. what I absolutely love is that sense of, you know, fresh excitement as our new undergraduates arrive. They don't know what is impossible. They have no sense of boundaries. They believe that although 
you know, their predecessors who are hopeless, haven't been able to solve all the world's problems, they will achieve that. Do you know, you know, that's that you can't bottle that. That's such an exciting and amazing and amazing thing. So, yes, their footnoting skills aren't what they used to be. And my big bugbear is nobody seems to know the difference between ITS and IT apostrophe S. <laughs> but our students are brilliant. They're excited. They're energetic. And they they genuinely want the planet to survive, people to survive in a more equitable way. And, and that helps me wake up every morning with a sense that it uh, was all going to be all right. I, and we're uh, going to have to come to the end of the podcast soon and because vice chancellors have got um, 11.30 meetings, uh, but um, time for another couple of questions. Yes, well, I, I was going to make a comment that um, the one thing I, I really disliked was 18-year-oldism. Uh, you know, the 18-year-olds of today are not like the 18-year-olds when I was 18. And I asked your prof of classics, Bob Fowler, when was the first time somebody complained that the youth of today was not uh, like the... And apparently it's Hector in the Iliad. <laughs> exactly. complains that the young warriors don't fight. The, and the Iliad was written in 600 BC, according to Bob. So, you know, this is a, 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 a common complaint. And, uh, and I, I'm just delighted with the excitement that you feel of that re renewal. That, that, yeah. that, and, and that, you know, what, what we get is, is undergraduates with different, different skills. And they, they can't just be clones of what we were in the late 70s uh, when we mm -hmm. were uh, undergraduates. So, um, and more exciting stuff to come for you? Uh, in so, so lots more exciting stuff to come uh, with the new campus that we're building down in Temple Quarter, very different ways of thinking about how space works um, in bringing together the university and the city, but also, for example, putting um, seminar spaces next to labs, next to commercial companies, which have spun out of our labs, so that you have a single environment, which is um, a, a very entrepreneurial. So you see not just um, taking an exam as the outcome of the work that you've done as a student, and not just uh, producing a PhD thesis, and, but actually going out and creating a product which you then actually um, create for communities or create on a commercial basis, and that all happening on the same floor. So that's a really exciting opportunity, not just for the University of Bristol, but for all universities, um, you know, getting out of that, universities were never really ivory towers, but getting away from that sense of being separate from business, being separate from, actual practice and bringing them together so the theory feeds into practice and practice feeds into theory and and that is an amazing opportunity for any vice chancellor yes absolutely and you're quite right to generalize that my old alma mater is newcastle upon time where i did my medical degree and in many respects of considerable similarities between the relationships of the universities in Newcastle with, with the city uh, and the universities uh, in Bristol with the city. 
Well, Evelyn, we've come to the end of our uh, 35 minutes and um, I, I was just wonderful to hear you talk about the students in the way that uh, you did and 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 the and and that that sense of renewal that they bring and so i i wish you all the, the very best um you uh, i i will be wandering over to bristol to see a grandchild at some stage so uh, uh, I look forward to meeting with you and we and we might be the same O2 concert at some stage. <laughs> we we will. We'll go see Florence and the Machine. Yeah. And and so so do come and visit. Uh, I think Bristol has built on the legacies of Vice Chancellors. Your your own time as Vice Chancellor, Hugh Brady's time as Vice Chancellor, and I've inherited the most special place, the most special group of people in an extraordinary city with remarkable buildings, collections, libraries, and it, it, it has been so well looked after. And my job is to, 10 years time, hand it to my successor Absolutely. in just the way that I've received it today, only better, yeah. bigger, and with all of the leaks in the roof fixed. <laughs> and with that comment, Evelyn, I think we can say cheerio to each other. And thank you so much for joining us. Cheerio, Eric. See you very Bye. soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium. An open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.